When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, cities worldwide were already facing environmental crises. Many of them are vulnerable to climate change-induced flooding, heat waves, and drought. But Amsterdam is now experimenting with a radical new theory to create a more sustainable future for its residents. We're getting very, very clear signals from the Earth system, from climate breakdown, from ecological breakdown, that the way we are pursuing growth is destroying the living systems on which we depend. Kate Rayworth of Oxford University calls herself a renegade economist. What makes the theory radical is Rayworth's assertion that governments need to stop looking at GDP growth as the ultimate measure of success. In 2020, the Dutch capital of Amsterdam announced that it was setting a new economic goal beyond economic growth instead seeking to enable its citizens to thrive within the Earth's limits. Not only that, but Kate Rayworth, the mastermind behind its model, cites Dana Meadows as among her core influences. You see, following publication of her book, Dana embarked on a decades-long campaign to challenge the dominant narrative of endless growth. Now, half a century on, that struggle, which was tragically cut short, may well be paying off. And yet, humankind's predicament has never been more precarious, while growth remains the goal of most every national government around the world. Economic growth is up. Labour will fight the next election on economic growth. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. So what can Dana's story and the barrier she faced, not least from her old nemesis, the economists, Tell us about what needs to happen if we are to yet avoid collapse and instead achieve her vision of a sustainable world. We wrote Limbs to Growth and then moved to New Hampshire. By the time the MIT project was over, Dana had given up all thoughts of returning to Harvard. When you created a model that indicates the upcoming collapse of civilization and your leaders seem bent on ignoring you, priorities change. They named Foundation Farm their new home in New Hampshire after the series of 1950s sci-fi novels by Isaac Asimov, about an intergalactic empire that tries to maintain an island of civilization while the social order of the universe collapses around them. We told ourselves and others that it would be a place where we would wait out the coming collapse, wrote Dana. The kind of smart aleck thing people say when they want to be shocking. The farm was not a place to hide while the world crashed around us. Rather, a place to try out the technologies and habits of a sustainable society. Primarily because we wanted to try to live the sort of life that we thought might be a solution to the questions raised in that book. See whether it was something we could advocate for other people to try a decentralized, regional, educative kind of approach to life. They intended to live with a small footprint, to try to grow food without chemicals and pesticides, to make their own clothes and furniture from the land and use little energy and recycle all their wastes. But they also wanted to show that living sustainably didn't mean going back to caves, as their adversaries often accused them of. That meant sharing the work in a co-living arrangement with other families. A commune, in other words, though Dennis hated the term. And it meant remaining active locally and on the global stage. More engaged than ever, in fact. The science informing their life on the farm, in turn influencing their work and others in a positive, reinforcing feedback loop. For Dana, it also meant deciding not to have children. Since learning of limits to growth, she had begun advocating for smaller families, especially in rich countries like her own. 
It was her way of reducing her own impact and it allowed her, as she would later write, more time to do all the things she and Dennis thought they could to work towards a sustainable society. Today I would like to tell you what I regard as the essence of system dynamics as a philosophy for learning about complex systems. A major part of that was teaching others. Learning about systems dynamics from Jay Forrester had had a profound impact on Dana's understanding of the way the world worked, and she wanted to help others gain the same wisdom. She and Dennis took up teaching and research positions at the nearby Liberal Arts College, Dartmouth. True to the philosophy of the interconnected nature of system dynamics, she refused to be pigeonholed in one department, but insisted on in working across faculties. And if it didn't work out, she was prepared to go elsewhere. I think we had a very rare, privileged uh, introduction to this institution in that we both came there not caring whether we got fired. So neither of us needed to do things Dartmouth's way, and we proceeded not to. I insisted on an interdisciplinary appointment, which was unheard of at the institution and still creates problems for them. We tried some new things, and they didn't fit very well, but they succeeded. Dana's interdisciplinary environmental studies program, the first of its kind, was soon oversubscribed, and it was set a blueprint for other colleges around the country. I'd like next to introduce Edward Morgan, commentator on ABC News. I suspect that the reaction to this book is going to be sharp from reactionaries, uh, from people so wedded to a lifestyle that the Chamber of Commerce and others have made so sacred uh, that they can't think of anything being virtuous that isn't growth. And I think it's up to us in the media, in the news media, to mount a basic education program. December 15, 1988. Let's do the environment story better this time. The media are buzzing with ecological consciousness. Garbage barges and the greenhouse effect are on page one. PBS and CNN are making documentaries on the state of the planet. College environmental science enrolments have tripled this year. This is Dana writing, not in her memoir, but in a weekly column that was by then syndicated in some 20 American news titles. Two years earlier, she and Dennis had separated, amicably, and remained close friends and colleagues. But to mark her new face in her life, Dana decided to rekindle her love of writing and make peace with the media spotlight. How much can our economy and every other nation's economy grow before the Earth's ecosystem is irreparably damaged? Our first guest is Dr. Danella Meadows. Welcome to the program, Dr. Meadows. Thank you very much. As an environmentalist, I greet these stirrings with mixed emotions, she wrote. Part of me says it's high time. Another part of me still bears scars from the last ecological fad. If this spurt of attention is to lead to real improvement, the environmentalists and the media together have got to do a better job this time around. Because in the years that followed limits to growth, as the hippie era died out, Environmental concerns, too, seemed to fade from the public consciousness. Dana started her column in the hope of reigniting a movement and raising awareness to new evidence of growing ecological and human development problems. Her advice to herself and others? Don't play on guilt and fear. Play on reason and vision. Don't castigate those who aren't acting. Spotlight those who are. Tell the truth, but don't dramatise it. And don't assume you have to make anyone care. Give people ideas of what they can do with the care they already have. 
in much greater measure than most of us are willing to believe. So that is what she did. Alongside her weekly column, she wrote a monthly newsletter to friends, colleagues and many others. In her letters and her columns, Dana sought to connect the local with the global, the heart with the head. She helped contextualise abstract or faraway issues like global hunger or global warming, playing up the good while being frank about the bad. Her vignettes about life on the farm reminded readers that we are all fundamentally connected to and dependent on nature. Dana also wanted to portray her ecological lifestyle not as the sorry story of sacrifice her nemesis liked to, but abundant, joyous, more fulfilling even, as Dana had once said, than that of the prevalent cultural pattern of America. Altogether, she published some 700 columns. It landed her a book deal, a Pulitzer nomination and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Dana later used her experience to teach classes in environmental journalism at Dartmouth, helping raise a new generation of ecologically aware reporters. Talks will end this week at the United Nations. Talks aimed at reaching an agreement on limiting the emissions of global warming gases. President Bush has expressed guarded interest. But I am not going to go to the Rio conference and make a bad deal or be a party to a bad deal. I'm not going to sign an agreement that does not protect the environment and the economy of this country. When they first wrote Limits to Growth, the MIT team could only work with what scientists thought might happen, based on our knowledge of the few known problems that had been properly studied, such as lead poisoning and DDT. By the late 1980s, a combination of research and far more powerful computing power had enabled science to advance considerably. It turns out a lot had happened in 20 years, much of it concerning. In particular, scientists now had evidence that greenhouse gas emissions caused by burning fossil fuels and clearing forests were causing our planet to warm at unprecedented rates, with potentially devastating impacts to nature and to ourselves. And global warming was not the only problem. Around the same time, Canadian ecologist William Rees and Swiss urban planner Matthias Wackenagel calculated what they would term humanity's ecological footprint. This is the amount of nature the average human being consumes each year, like farmland and fish stocks, and the amount of natural sinks, our oceans, forests and atmosphere, that are required to absorb our pollution. Their finding? Humanity had already started to overshoot the Earth's carrying capacity. And worse, we seem to be showing no signs of slowing down. Humanitarian problems too remained persistent. In two decades, the poorest parts of the world had seen little to no improvement in levels of hunger, malnutrition or poverty. Moreover, as outlined in the landmark 1987 United Nations report, Our Common Future, many of the actions taken to solve social problems, like increasing food or energy access, were worsening environmental ones. MIT team member Jürgen Randers once said how, when they first published The Limits to Growth, he thought they had failed to convince leaders because they could not yet see the problems. Surely now that signs of overshoot were actually visible and measurable, things would be different. To try to revive global will to solve the growing problematique, the United Nations organised a follow-up event to the Stockholm Conference, an Earth Summit, to be held in Rio in the summer of 1992. Ahead of the Rio Conference, the Meadows made another attempt to influence the powers that be. Twenty years ago, a group of faculty and graduate students from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology released a report to the Club of Rome. The new book, titled Beyond the Limits, provides an update of the original manuscript using expanded information to test the 20-year-old warnings. 
Next on C-SPAN 2, we'll bring you coverage of the forum, which featured the book's co-authors, Danella Meadows, a biophysicist at Dartmouth College, Dennis Meadows, a systems management professor at the University of New Hampshire, and physicist Jürgen Randers, a former president of the Norwegian School of Management. Shortly after publication of their book, their longtime supporter, Aurelio Pache, had helped found the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna, Austria, a pioneering research facility to promote collaboration across the Iron Divide. From the connections they made in their regular trips there, the Meadows began organising an annual gathering in nearby Hungary, bringing together scientists and experts from across cultures and disciplines to exchange knowledge and collaborate on research in the growing field that Dana would later term sustainability. It was on the basis of the knowledge that they had amassed over the past two decades that they now came together with former colleague Jürgen to update their original model. They knew that humanity had overstepped some biophysical limits. What shocked them was how economic growth, a doubling in real terms in the size of the global economy in just 20 years, rather than helping steer the world to a safer path, had taken it further towards the cliff edge. Humanity was still tracking dangerously close to the scenario in which collapse takes place around the middle of the 21st century. And yet there were still signs of hope. Population growth in richer nations, the world's largest consumers, had fallen faster than in their standard run. Advances in energy efficiency had progressed further than expected. As Dana once wrote, it hadn't been possible to farm productively without chemicals in the 1970s. By the 1990s, it was. If these developments could be harnessed for good, if we could immediately act to stem pollution, especially of greenhouse gases, and curb the undifferentiated economic growth that was pushing us beyond the Earth's safe limits, there was a chance of reversing the overshoot and finding a safe landing. I think it's important to illustrate the possibilities of collapse, which are close and scary. It's also important to understand that there's a possibility of a sustainable world ahead. Eight or nine billion people could be supported on this planet sustainably below the limits with no hunger, with no poverty. Dana and her colleagues felt that this new book was even more important and urgent than the first. We had now gone beyond the limits. But to avoid being labelled as doomsayers, she also took pains to end the book on a note of optimism with a clear and positive vision of a sustainable world that would be cleaner, more beautiful, more equitable and more prosperous than the one we were sliding towards. She even, after much discussion with her colleagues, allowed herself to talk about the change in culture that could help bring about this turnaround, of a need for an economic system that represented core human values of care, empathy and love. They sent their book to 10 publishers and received... 10 rejection letters. The first book was so strikingly fresh in its vision and approach. This doesn't seem to go beyond I told you so, read one response. I think the climate has changed enough to make this book an unlikely seller, answered another. And a third, perhaps most prophetically. It's power, greed and self-interest on the part of government, if you ask me. And love ain't gonna get it. Indeed, when they finally found a publisher for their new book, Beyond the Limits, it received just a fraction of the attention of their first. Part of the disinterest, 20 years on, was thanks to a common perception that their original work had already been discredited, perpetuated in a 1989 Forbes article written by correspondent Ronald Bailey, 
Bailey claimed, incorrectly, the MIT team had forecast humanity would by now have already run out of a number of key metals and minerals. But Bailey had misread a table in Dana's book, which was intended to illustrate the concept of exponential growth and how quickly limits could be reached should there be no more mineral discoveries. As was clear to anyone who had read the book, the team investigated many scenarios, and even their standard run assumed mankind would continue to make new discoveries in the coming decades, as it had in previous ones. The main factors leading to a decline in the standard run are the exponential rise in pollution and the erosion of nature. Yet Bailey's claims spread like wildfire among sceptics, and continues to haunt the book's reputation to this day. But there was something else at play. Just as scientific evidence on humanity's impact on our environment was strengthening, so too were the lobby and interest groups that sought to protect the status quo. Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute and our policy forum today, The End of the World as We Know It, The Apocalypse Lobby Goes to Rio. This book, Beyond the Limits, which is the sequel, of course, sort of like uh, most bad movies, they get a sequel, to uh, The Limits to Growth, and in that intervening time they haven't learned anything except to make more sophisticated lies. Twenty years ago there was no forum like this where you could criticize this kind of thinking. Now Cato and many other solid groups speak for the truth about the environment and natural resources in connection with a free economic system. The last person heard speaking here was economist Julian Simon. In the two decades since The Limits to Growth, most economists remain critical of the book's conclusions. Indeed, its entire premise that economic growth and environmental protection may at some point become incompatible. To economists and the politicians they advised, growth was not just a means to overcome environmental limits. It was a way to mask social problems too. Since the 1970s, the United States and other rich countries have begun slashing taxes to stimulate growth, leading to higher incomes but also widening inequality. As economist Henry Wallach, a prominent limits to growth critic, had once said, economic growth is a substitute for equality of income. So long as there is growth, there is hope. And that makes large income differentials tolerable. It's perhaps not surprising then that elites, including even some elements of the scientific old guard, who equated growth with progress, seem to prefer the economist's story too. When Beyond the Limits hit the bookshelves, editor of the influential journal Nature, John Maddox, and another long-time Limits to Growth critic, offered economist William Beckerman the honours of reviewing it. He labelled it as yet more garbage in, garbage out. In the same issue, he praised as accurate and scholarly a new model estimating the cost of global warming by another economist, Bill Nordhaus. This, you may recall, is the same economist who had attacked Jay Forrester's first model and whose journal had refused to publish Forrester's response. Dana was deeply concerned. As Nordhaus would later recount, he was one of few economists to even consider global warming a problem back then, and even struggled to get his papers published in economic journals. And yet, to Dana, his approach contained a number of fundamental flaws, and since, quote, any one of these flaws would be enough to flunk a beginning student in systems dynamics, I tend to be aghast that such models are made, let alone published. That was Dana writing to Nordhaus in response to his own attack on her new book, which he entitled Lethal Models 2. I wish to clean up the flow of misapprehensions in which the economics community represents her work, she wrote. But more importantly, I want to try to reach across that tedious and fruitless paradigm gap 
which has kept us lobbying publications at each other for 20 years without having moved our argument even one step forward. For I am not only personally sick of this game, I also happen to think that the world no longer has time for it. To Dana, among Nordhaus's fundamental flaws was his attempt to estimate an optimal level of warming that balanced the costs of changing our ways and paying for any damages, with the supposed benefits of more economic growth. But he had based his estimates not on the growing body of scientific work about the risks of global warming, but a survey mainly of other economists whose projections were, perhaps unsurprisingly, far more relaxed than those of natural scientists. One scientist even wrote he feared the true cost could be incalculable if we really should let warming get out of control, and refused to name a dollar price. So Nordhaus admitted his response. He even went a step further by applying a discount rate to future costs. His somewhat baffling assumption? More wealth today means we'll need to spend less relatively tomorrow. Thus, it is better to prioritise growth over more immediate action. Yet Dana and her colleagues' work had indicated quite the opposite. Because of natural feedbacks, as well as the time it takes for leaders to recognise and act on problems, delaying action today only makes it harder and more costly in future to alter course and lessens our chances of success. Despite several exchanges which Nordhaus requested be kept confidential, he neither rescinded his criticism of Dana's latest book, nor did he adapt his own models. According to his calculations, humanity need only start to worry about warming when it reached around 3 or 4 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average. This is far above scientific consensus even back then, and a level that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has since calculated would make large swathes of our planet, currently home to one third of the world population, unlivable. If this was just the work of one rogue economist, it may not have mattered. But since Nordhaus was one of few mainstream economists to care about climate change at all, the implicit support by the likes of Maddox, Beckerman and others whose interests aligned with infinite growth enabled Nordhaus to set the blueprint for studies in environmental and climate economics in academic departments around the world. His models would be adopted by the United States Environmental Protection Agency and even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which used them to determine when and by how much the world should reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In 2018, the economics community even awarded Nordhaus with the equivalent of a Nobel Prize for his efforts. It is hard to overstate the implications. The choice of model determines the choice of policy. By overestimating the costs of action and radically underestimating those of inaction, the models developed by Nordhaus and his colleagues have arguably helped contribute to decades of climate delay. While Nordhaus's personal attacks on Dana and her colleagues helped ensure that alternative but likely far more realistic models, such as those based on systems dynamics, would largely be ignored. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome uh, Professor William Nordhaus. The Arctic's on thin ice, and we ain't seen nothing yet. In late January 2001, Dana Meadows sat down to write her weekly Global Citizen column. She began, The place to watch for global warming... The canary in the coal mine is the poles. If the planet as a whole warms by one degree, the poles will warm by three degrees or so, which is precisely what is now happening. Dana was worried, and she was tired. The college flu has been pursuing me since the beginning of the term, when the Dartmouth students brought it in from all over the nation and started circulating it around campus. Last night I finally got unbusy enough to give in to it, she wrote in her monthly newsletter. 
I'm intending to stay this way only for this weekend. After that, there's too much to do again. The Rio conference, like its Stockholm predecessor, had failed to produce a binding agreement on our environment and specifically on tackling global warming. Several years later in Kyoto, certain industrialised nations finally knocked out a plan to gradually reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But thanks to perception that tackling climate change would be too costly for its economy, the United States refused to ratify it. By the turn of the century, emissions and temperatures were rising exponentially. And that meant Dana was busier than ever. On her desk was a half-written textbook on systems thinking and sustainability, lesson plans for her classes at Dartmouth, policy papers produced by her quote, Think Do Tank, the Sustainability Institute, which she had set up several years earlier to help foster the transition to sustainable society. And her personal favourite, plans for a nearby eco-community, a project which she had helped initiate and which encapsulated her vision of how she hoped we would one day all live. Indeed, she planned to move there herself that summer. But she would not go to Cobhill Farm. She would not recover that weekend. The college flu that had been circulating around campus was not flu, but meningitis. Her condition deteriorated and Dana Meadows died, age 59, on February 20th, 2001. We need to stop the madness with which we are treating nature. Wildlife populations have fallen by nearly 70% since 1970. Statistics are overwhelming. Most data suggests at least 7 million people, perhaps as many as 10 or more million people a year dying from air pollution. Most of that from the burning of fossil fuels. Fertilizers, pesticides and metals poison our oceans. Substances are now outpacing our ability to verify if they're safe. A new report from the United Nations warns that at our current rate, the world is set for disastrous overheating. The floods have caused tremendous suffering. Tremendous suffering. Unspeakable suffering. I have never seen climate carnage on this scale. I have simply no words to describe what I've seen. When they first published The Mits to Growth, it was the slights by scientific elites that arguably caused the most damage, bolstering the arguments of anyone else, especially the economists, who rejected the idea of ending growth. But in the years since Dana's passing, science has finally come around to the idea of planetary limits. Dennis Meadows, you are absolutely one of my top heroes in the world. And you've influenced me and so many of my peers in the world. You already 50 years ago basically outlined with such precision the journey of humanity on Earth, this extraordinary accomplishment. In 2009, none other than British journal Nature dedicated an entire issue to a new landmark study led by Earth system scientist Johan Rockström, who we've just heard speaking in a recent interview with Dennis Meadows. The study was entitled Planetary Boundaries, a Safe Space for Humanity. The work of an interdisciplinary team of 30 scientists, it marked a first attempt to quantify critical thresholds of damage our planet systems can sustain before we start to endanger humanity. The team found that there do indeed exist certain limits. There are limits, for example, on levels of atmospheric warming, ocean acidification, volumes of aerosol pollutants and depletion of freshwater resources, which have passed start to erode the conditions for life on Earth. Shortly after the report's release, Oxford economist Kate Rayworth tried to envisage the kind of economic system that could enable humanity to thrive within the planet's ecological limits. 
she drew a circle to represent the planetary boundaries and within that, a smaller inner ring to represent the foundation of basic human needs. Too much damage pushes us beyond the outer ring, beyond the ability of our Earth to sustain us indefinitely. Too little of what we need to thrive, like nutritious food, clean water, education and democratic voice, threaten human well-being. She reasoned that the task for this century must be to get everyone within that sweet spot between the two rings. Standing back, she realised that that sweet spot looked, well, like a donut. So donut economics, it's not about donuts, but it's about the future of humanity. What we need are economies that enable people to have good jobs in communities where they reap some of the value that's created. So we need to reorient our economies away from the notion that growth is success to the notion that thriving that meets the needs of all people within the means of the planet, that's success. Reworth cites as inspiration ecological economics, a field that emerged around the same time as limits to growth, but which has been broadly dismissed by the economic mainstream. Another inspiration was Dana Meadows' playbook on how to think in systems, completed and edited by her former assistant Diana Wright. Anyone who's familiar with the work of Donella Meadows, she wrote this phenomenal book that's profoundly influenced me called Thinking in Systems, and she talks about the different leverage points for intervening in the system. And right down the bottom is, you know, you could tweak the tax rate, but going higher and higher up the leverage at the top is changing the paradigm. So I think, you know, one of the most powerful forms of protest is to propose something new. Rayworth's book Donut Economics was released in 2017. Like The Limits to Growth, it has become an international bestseller. Not surprisingly, her work has largely been ignored by mainstream economists. However, it has captured the imagination of students, educators, activists and progressive political and business leaders. In 2020, the Dutch capital of Amsterdam became the first city to announce a goal to become a donut city. Since then, coalitions promoting the donut have emerged in some 70 cities and regions around the world. Four big tipping element systems are likely to cross their tipping points already at 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is why we have so strong scientific evidence today for defending and holding on to the 1.5 degrees Celsius planetary boundary. That was the voice again of Earth system scientist Johan Rockström, this time discussing, in May 2023, the latest science on tipping points in our climate system. Tipping points are those points at which, as in Dana's example of the Kaibab Plateau, a system is pushed so far that it starts to irreversibly tip into a new state. As the Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheets start to melt, less heat is reflected out into space, speeding up the melt. As ocean warming and acidification kill off coral reefs, less carbon is absorbed by marine life, leading to more heating, leading to more die-offs. As permafrost thaws, greenhouse gases that have been buried for millennia are released, and so the thawing accelerates. Nearing any one of these tipping points would be cause for serious alarm. To risk breaching all four should surely call for an immediate transformation of our economic priorities. In the same week that Johan Rockström gave that talk, the World Meteorological Organization warned that there is now a two-thirds chance of breaching the 1.5 degree warming limit within the next five years. And climate change, caused mainly by the burning of fossil fuels, is just one of nine planetary boundaries. Harms from our food and agricultural system, such as runoff from fertilisers into our waterways, freshwater depletion, deforestation and collapsing insect populations have also moved beyond the safe limit. And by reducing the ability of our soils and oceans to store carbon, these in turn make us more vulnerable to climate change. 
for the past 15 years, we've identified nine biophysical systems that we have scientific evidence that they contribute to regulate the stability and resilience of the Earth system. And unfortunately, the conclusion is that six of the nine are outside of the safe space. We're continuing to move in the wrong direction. It's not enough to just phase out fossil fuels. We also need, even for a safe climate landing, to come within planetary boundaries. This is the only chance for us to, to hold on to 1.5. Despite significant technological advances and massive increases in wealth in the past half century, breaking the reinforcing feedbacks between economic growth, resource use and pollution has been much harder than critics of limits to growth were willing to admit. Renegade economists like Rayworth put forward that it is our obsession with growth itself that prevents us from solving our ecological crisis. Yet, most mainstream economists, using models that fail to account for ecological feedbacks or tipping points, insist on the possibility of green growth, one in which we can continue growing our economies while continually decoupling from environmental harms. Some point to evidence of cleaner energy systems in Europe as a sign decoupling is possible. Ecological economists such as Tim Parikh, who have researched evidence of decoupling, have concluded this is not the case. One reason is that improvements, say in energy efficiency, tend to get ploughed back into increasing production, often leading to more harmful growth than before. Another is that most economic decoupling from greenhouse gas emissions has involved changes in energy systems that did not harm corporate profits or require changes in behaviour. But actions needed to avoid ecological collapse within the needed timescales may require scaling down whole industries. And post-growth economist Jennifer Hinton, using the tools of systems dynamics to study the for-profit economy, found that polluters tend to push back against any measures that harm growth or profits. Indeed, the more governments try to pursue growth in order to solve the ecological and social crisis, paradoxically, the more likely they are to give in to polluters in order to achieve it. If you want green growth, you need to absolutely decouple production and consumption from all environmental pressures, wherever these happen, at a pace that is sufficiently fast to avoid ecological collapse, and you need to maintain that decoupling over time. That green growth has never been achieved anywhere on Earth. And I haven't seen any convincing evidence showing that it could. If you believe in green growth, the burden of proof is on you. It feels irresponsibly foolish to bet the survival of humanity on a highly improbable miracle predicted by the obscure models of a handful of economists. Thirty years on from Dana's attempts to find common ground with her economist critics, a new generation of economic scholars is now calling for an end to her dependency on growth, and some even for degrowth, like French scholar Tim Parikh, heard speaking here. In May 2023, two and a half thousand scholars, experts, policymakers and activists from across Europe met in the European Parliament for three days of intense debate and discussion on how Europe could build a post-growth economy putting the well-being of citizens at its core. Discussed policies ranged from scaling down wasteful and destructive forms of production, to expanding access to quality public services, to supporting care work and funding green job guarantees, to implementing wealth taxes, shorter working weeks and citizens' assemblies at every level of government. Coupled with reforms to make fairer global trade and financial systems, a swift transition in rich countries within Europe would also enable poorer countries with the lowest footprints 
to safely increase their resources until a sufficient social foundation is reached. Or as some put it, degrowth for the rich, green growth for the poor. And one of the most rousing calls for such a transition to a post-growth economy came from none other than the new co-president of the Club of Rome, Sandrine Dixon de Cleve. We are here today for the next three days in the European Parliament talking about the root cause of the poly crisis, the obsession with growth. It is a historical fact that political leaders chose to follow the most destructive scenarios of the limits to growth. The most important thing we can do right now is invest in social cohesion. At the heart of that is human well-being, economic security and ecological resistance, not growth. Dana Meadows once wrote that the most powerful way to change a system was to change the paradigm of the system, such as by replacing the goal of economic growth with that of human and planetary well-being. People who cling to paradigms, which, Dana wrote, is just about all of us, take one look at that spacious possibility that everything they think is guaranteed to be nonsense and pedal rapidly in the opposite direction. But in fact, everyone who has managed to entertain that idea for a moment or for a lifetime has found it to be the basis for radical empowerment. We may have been wrong to ignore the limits to growth, but if there can be any fitting legacy for the MIT team, and in particular for Dana Meadows, it may be that thanks to her work and the work of those she and her colleagues inspired in the following decades, an increasing number of people are finding themselves empowered to change the system. I think the biggest part is simply showing up in the public debate with the long-term view and with the whole world view. Being willing to speak out, to, to question growth, that growth which, when it is undifferentiated, when we just go for it without any consideration of its sustainability, its equity, or its quality, to, to question that kind of growth and say, what material growth actually do we need, for whom, at what cost, and how long can it be continued? Especially to point out who benefits and who gains, and who in the short term and the long term. And to do that insistently, finally, and this is the hard question, this is the question that will be foremost in a sustainable world. To ask, where are we going? Really, what is this progress for? What is this growth for? What is this economy for? What is this planet for and what is our purpose on it? The questions we flee from, especially in the public arena. Nobody wants or needs growth. What people want and or need is material sufficiency, long-term security and sustainability, equity, and a, and a purpose larger than accumulating material things. That discussion itself, I think, will make the difference between the two kinds of futures that we've talked about here today. Thank you. This was the third and final part of Tipping Point, the true story of the limits to growth. This podcast was researched, created and produced by myself, Katie Shields and Vegard Bayer. Nora Bayer composed and produced the original music score. Anna Magdaleno was responsible for sound editing and the artwork is by Amy Shields. You can find links to all episodes across all major podcast platforms, as well as the full credits and acknowledgements at tippingpoint-podcast.com where you can also subscribe to stay updated about future projects. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share it in your networks. Thank you for listening.